This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au. In your face. Shaday there. Every word for after for you on In Your Face on 3CR with James. On today's show, we speak to Kirsty Miller about the Castor Semenya athletics decision. And at 4.20 and 4.40, Rodney Kroom and Anna Brown join us to discuss LGBTIQ policy issues as part of our election focus. Well, the Court of Arbitration in Sport has ruled champion runner Castor Semenya must take hormone-lowering agents or have surgery if she wishes to continue her athletics career. On the line, we have sports inclusion expert Kirsty Miller. Kirsty, welcome back to In Your Face. Hi, James. Great to be back on your awesome show. And you've got a star-studded lineup with Rodney and Anna following. Thank you so much. Look, Kirsty, why did the court make the decision and do you think it's fair? Well, first, we've got to look at what the court of arbitration is. Firstly, it's not a court, even though it says in its name. Um, What what the court of arbitration is, it's a quasi-judicial tribunal where athletes, they they don't have their cases heard in front of a judge. They present in front of a panel of um, arbitrators who are specialists in mediation and sports law. They're neither medical or human rights specialists. It's pretty much what we call down here down under a kangaroo court. And unfortunately, this is the culture of the International Olympic Committee sporting system. It's above the law, James. Um, and yeah, this has been a situation with, particularly with Carstead going on now about 11 years. And the um, there's been a lot of backlash against the IAAF with this policy. We've had the, the World Medical Association. They've urged physicians globally not to implement the IAAF policy, and also the UN. Um, they've called for governments to make sure that sports organisations refrain from developing and enforcing policies and practices that force, coerce and otherwise pressure women and girls into undergoing unnecessary, humiliating and harmful medical procedures, such as what they expect athletes like Carter to undertake. Um, and this isn't new with the IAAF, James, um, Prior to the 2012 London Games, there was four young, vulnerable females ranging from 18 to 21 years of age. These girls were coerced into having medical procedures, not only to surgically castrate their their main androgen receptors, they also had their genitalia reconstructed. They had their clitoris made smaller to make it look more feminine to fit the ideal norm of of the IWF as a woman. This is like disgusting stuff. And the medications that they're saying that these athletes need to take, they're not the pill. What they're saying is these drugs are the same drugs that they give convicted sex offenders in some correctional jurisdictions. Now, this stuff should make the hairs on on the back of every female in the world stand up. This is a really, truly Me Too moment in, in, in women's sport. And we've got to look at the process extremely flawed process of this policy development. Firstly, the IAAF created the policy. Secondly, they asked for proof. Then then this proof was, um, they provided their own evidence right at the court. And then this evidence that they provided, that was actually um, re-looked at by three exceptional um, scholars, one a Ross Tucker and a Roger Pelkey, and just coming to the other one at the moment, they found around a 33% um, in 
flawed errors in, in, in the policy, um, in the research which the IAAF undertook to put this policy through. So they then provided their own evidence and then they defended their own evidence in the Kangaroo Court, the Court of Arbitration. That's a massive conflict of interest. And this isn't a transgender or intersex issue. This is a woman in, in sport issue, James. Yeah, I was going to ask you about intersex issues. There have been reports that uh, that Castor does have an intersex condition. This seems incredibly discriminatory uh, on on gender fronts, on intersex fronts, uh, on on all kinds of levels. And there doesn't seem to be a great scientific basis for this argument that they have that you know increased hormone levels would give her an advantage in the sport. What's your comment on that? There's absolutely not one study in the whole wide world that that can relate endogenous, the naturally occurring testosterone level, to increase athletic performance. None whatsoever. If you hear that that is the case, that is not the case. And if it was the case, everyone would be aware of it, and no one is aware of it. There there is no science, there is no research whatsoever um, with this policy. And the problem with having a a policy based simply on um, volume testosterone, it doesn't take into account the individual sensitivity to androgens. There's some conditions with a DSD, females with a DSD condition, that their bodies are completely immune to and insensitive to testosterone. Their body does not react. You, know? um, you could take them to a VP service station, James, and fill them full of testosterone, and their body does not react to that. So this is completely flawed. This is just policing women's bodies, in particular... Um, you know, with these, there's a higher representation of girls from the from um, Africa in this. It's definitely discrimination. It's um, definitely a human rights breach. But unfortunately, every single athlete under the the um, Olympic movement they signed an athletes agreement, and this is a really important case to, to listen to. That you must read the small print because the minute that any athlete under the Olympic movement signs that athlete agreement. They waive their, their um, rights to the, the, the laws in their country, the, the, the um, international human rights laws. They're gone. You know, they've got no comeback. So unfortunately for, for Castor to appeal this personally, she would pretty much have to give up sport and then try and take it to a, a real court, similar to what Kristen Morley did with the, against the, the World Cycling Body, the UCI, when she challenged their policy and won when she took it to real court. So, Kirsty, what's the political backstory to this decision being made by the Court of Arbitration in sport? I imagine they were put under some pressure by various stakeholders. What's your take on what happened that led to this decision? This has been, um, particularly in the, in the last year or so, it's been a, a big push by pretty much a number of UK athletes. Um, and these athletes are blonde women, um, People like Sharon Davy, where she, she tweeted the other day that Castor isn't a female. She was just assigned incorrectly at birth, and she's actually a male. Well, she's not. Castor was born a female. She was born with female genitalia. She's lived her whole life as, as a female. So what pretty much the sporting bodies and Seb Coe, he should bow his head in shame. He, he's trying to implement the Twiggy effect in, in women's sport. He's the ideal of a woman. They've even put out um, in their responses pictures of what the ideal female body is. Well, 
I'm you know, 54 years of age. I, I've never seen two women in the same games, and I've played a lot of sport, and I've played against women 135 kilos. You know, this is about protecting the brand of the OIC and the IAAF. This is truly a me too moment in women's sport. So has there been much backlash against this decision? Has there been much support for Castor? Uh, and is that momentum building? Do you do you see this decision being overturned at all, for example? Absolutely. Um, well, the main pressure that comes from professional bodies is the World Medical Association, and they've urged every physician that they will be break, breaking their, their code of conduct as, as a doctor by implementing these policies. So... There's, what the IAAF are proposing is to lessen the health of an already healthy athlete and big call from the United Nations when they've called this policy out. Um, there is online, last night come online, over 300,000 people have rejected on a, a change, um, change org um, campaign. Um, there's going to be pressure placed on the, the, the sponsors, the major partners of, of the IAAF, um, this is really gaining, gaining momentum. There's scholars all around the world. The only people defending the IAAF policy are the IAAF. What do we know about Castor's reaction to the decision? She's an amazing person. She's led from example. For the last 11 years, this woman has, has just rose above this and become a champion, not only on the track, but a champion off the track, um, you know, Castor is, has made a statement that she's not going to take these drugs, which I'd recommend she never does because I've lived and breathed with these changes, you know. Um, Castor is amazing. She's considered pretty much in, in, in South Africa. She's Ian Thorpe or the, you know, the, the top athlete over there. She's adored on and off the track. Um, yeah, poor Castor, like, this, this is terrible. It's targeted Castor, but this does not just affect castors. This affects all women in sport. You know, to give an example of how bad the sporting system and the water system is, James, um, they, they don't police the testosterone levels of males, but they do females. So to give an example, if we had a 13-year-old male athlete that unfortunately had an accident or a disease that he lost his main androgen receptor, i.e. his gonads, Sporting policy allows him to to seek a therapeutic use exemption and be given testosterone supplementation to bring him up to the same health as his same-sex counterparts. But any female, so if we have a 13-year-old girl that gets a disease or an accident or whatever, loses her main androgen receptor, that poor young girl does not get the same benefit as what WADA provides male athletes. She is not allowed to get any testosterone supplementation. So this is really, really a social bias in, in this. It's completely medically flawed, and there's definitely human right breaches. So to turn this around through the court system, it's going to take either one after to stop competing and challenge it in a, in a human rights court outside the autonomy of sport, or number two, another um athlete with a DSB condition to challenge this because the quarter arbitration doesn't set a precedent when they make these decisions. It's a one-off. And what they've found, and they even found in their findings that it was discriminatory, okay? And, and what, what, what they do is um, it would take another whole athlete to, to challenge this and 
It's, they've made it a living document. So Carsten now chose to change her event. The IAAF are able to change the policy and include the other events because during their research, James, the, the, the events that CASTA competes in and the, and the events that they've implemented this policy on, which is only CASTA's events, they were not the events that they found that testosterone increased in endogenous testosterone improved performance the most. In fact, the 100 metres running, the biggest gap in this study found that the women with the lowest testosterone levels, they had the advantage, a 5.4% advantage. Um, events like the pole vault and hammer throw, they were found to have a far bigger advantage than what the, the, the actual events that the IAAF had based this policy on. This is targeted discrimination at Castor. Kirsty Miller, always great to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining me today on 3CR. It's really appreciated and keep up the fight. And Absolutely, James. Everyone can jump online and follow my Twitter account and you'll see the links there to support Pastor officially. And, you know, just every sporting body, every athlete, send an email to the OIC and send an email to the IAAF and ask them for their research and policy. You'll be stunned that you get no response. Kirsty Miller, thanks heaps for your time. Always great to chat Bye, with James. you on 3CR. Cheers. Line Melon there, no rain, 20 after 41, in your face on 3CR. With James on the line, we have Rodney Croom to talk about election policy for the LGBTIQ community during this election campaign. Good afternoon, Rodney. Welcome back to 3CR. Hi, James. Thanks for having me on. It's a great pleasure. Rodney, what's the main policy issue that you think needs highlighting for the LGBTIQ community leading into the final week of the election campaign? I'm not sure that we can say any one issue is... Is, is is dominating um, or more important uh, there are because the parties cover a range of different issues in their policies um, some of the surveys that have been done in the LGBTI community over the last 12 months indicate that um, a ban on conversion therapy is a very high priority um, so are the continuing religious exemptions that exist in anti-discrimination laws um, and uh, and at least Labor and the Greens have addressed you know, those issues directly, um, but they've also addressed, like I said, a number of other issues. So, so the conversion therapy issue, Labor and the Greens have said that they'll work on you know, a, a national ban on on the idea of of therapies to try and turn LGBTI people um, uh, straight, if you like. Um, Labor and the Greens have also said that they will uh, remove some of the exemptions in existing anti-discrimination law that allow LGBTI people to be discriminated against. Labor has said it'll do that in schools. Greens have said they'll do that across all uh, anti-discrimination law so that no faith-based services have those kinds of um, exemptions anymore, including hospitals and and, uh, social services. Um, Labor and the Greens have also said that they'll look at inclusion policies, health policies, particularly for trans people, um, and they want to appoint a, a quality commissioner, um, the LGBTI human rights commissioner, and also an equality minister. The coalition's policy, well, the main policy they've come to the LGBTI community with at the moment, the main positive policy is a $3 million for uh, addressing LGBTI mental health, um, which is a step forward. 
Um, but both of the other parties I've mentioned also have big money commitments as well. Labor has said that it will put money into community organisations, particularly a $10 million grant for the Pride Centre in St Kilda, uh, and the Greens have said they'll put $70 million in. Um, so they're, if you like, the, the main commitments that the parties have made, uh, including to the key issues I think a lot of LGBTI people are concerned about, like conversion therapy. So what's the coalition saying about conversion therapy? Have they been fairly silent on the issue? As far as I know, they haven't put forward a detailed policy to try and address that issue. Um, there have been statements by some coalition members that conversion therapy is not appropriate and that that shouldn't be happening in the 21st century. Um, but I haven't seen a commitment to actually banning the practice, unfortunately. Um, that that commitment really, at the moment, seems to be a, a Green or, or a Labor commitment. And between those two parties, Labor and the Greens, there's also an issue, I guess, about how you ban it, whether you have criminal sanctions that apply to the, practicing that, that, that kind of therapy or whether it's just about civil penalties and about deregistering uh, people who practice it. Um, and uh, both parties sort of defer a bit on those issues and uh, I would like to see, to see them be a bit stronger. I think it definitely needs strong criminal penalties. Have Labor and the Greens said how they would define conversion therapy in any legislation? No, um, they've been, uh, they haven't been all that detailed about exactly what we're talking about. Um, and uh, obviously, I, you know, I would like their policies to defer on the side of a broad definition. Um, but I guess and it is a, it's a fact that this is a new issue in Australia and I, I hope that whichever party gets in, um, they will look at this issue and, and try and get as much expert advice as possible in how to ensure that a ban is as comprehensive as possible and uh, as effective as possible. Um, and like I said, I think that would mean criminal sanctions and it would mean a wide definition of what this, this so-called conversion therapy is. Certainly the survivor groups um, have said that they want not only the practice of conversion therapy to be banned, but they also want uh, the parties to look at the ideology that lies behind it. Um, the idea that LGBTI people are somehow broken or um, that God has created us wrong or whatever it might be. Um, and uh, both parties have made a commitment to looking at that issue as well, to, looking at, to look at the ideology um, uh, and the mythology that lies behind the practice of conversion therapy. So it's not all just about banning you know, electric shock treatment, which doesn't seem to happen very much anymore in Australia. It's looking at the at the at the at the systems of thought behind that, which cause such a deep pain and trauma. The cynical side of me thinks that perhaps the coalition is trying to be on its best behaviour regarding LGBTIQ issues after Kelly O'Dwyer's famous comment after the Victorian election that people perceive them as being women-hating, homophobic, climate change deniers. Can you imagine them having a big fight on this conversion therapy issue after the election? I mean, if we look at how the marriage equality issue played out, they seem hopelessly divided on LGBTIQ issues. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I was going to say, yes. I kind of imagine Erica Betts from Tasmania actually having um, you know, a view that's perhaps similar to, say, some of the moderates in the party. No. Um, uh, there would be deep divisions on this issue in the coalition, as there are with any LGBTI issue. Um, 
uh, as we can recall from the marriage equality debate, where the coalition actually put that to a national vote. And then the, the very people who insisted that the people's voice be heard didn't actually heed that vote and abstained or voted against it. So, um, yeah, the, the coalition is deeply divided on these issues. And uh, it's a bit hard at the moment to say who will have the upper hand after the election, the moderates or the, or, or the more conservative members, more traditional members. Um, my hope is that the moderates will still have a strong voice after the election, whether the government is returned or not, so that they're able to you know, move coalition policy ahead on this. But at the moment, it's impossible to say. Are you concerned this could become a wedge issue within the LGBTIQ community? For example, uh, intersex groups are calling for uh, conversion therapies ban to include uh, surgery for intersex variations. Can you imagine that being a potentially divisive issue within our community? No, no. I don't think that would be divisive at all. I mean, um, just in terms that, of that a, what we settle really... for. Sorry? Just in terms of what we settle for insofar as any Labor or Greens bill, uh, you know, perhaps it may just focus on sexuality rather than intersex issues. Do you think that yeah, that's... Yeah, no, I, yeah. I understand. Um, uh, I, I don't think it needs to be. The, uh, in, in Tasmania, recently we've, we've discussed gender, transgender, uh, gender diverse and intersex law reforms. Um, and uh, I've found amongst um, gay, lesbian, bi and trans people quite a strong degree of support for ending unnecessary surgeries on intersex people. So there may not be a, a really high level of understanding about exactly what happens uh, with, um, with surgery on intersex babies. Um, but uh, once, it's, once people begin to talk about it, there is very strong support there. So I, I don't see it as being divisive and I don't see it as being difficult. I mean... Um, uh, it should be possible for us as a country to be able to amend our criminal laws to ensure that there isn't this unnecessary surgery on intersex babies and there's greater self-determination for intersex people in how they identify and um, and the integrity of you know control over their own bodies. Um, in, in Tasmania at the moment, that issue is before the Law Reform Institute, just looking at how what Tasmanian criminal laws would need to be changed to ensure that's the case. Um, and my understanding of that of what's happening with that process is that the Law Reform Institute doesn't think it would be very difficult. When we're reforming criminal laws, of course, that does mean it's a state issue. So the states would probably have to do this individually. But what the Commonwealth can do in this regard is set a standard and say this is the best standard when it comes to reforming state criminal law to ensure that intersex people are treated equally. Um, and again, I don't think that would be difficult and I don't think it would be something that would be Divisive. I fear that perhaps the issue that will create a bit of dissent and discussion is this issue about whether um, there should be, or to what extent there should be criminal penalties that apply to the practice of um, of conversion therapy. Um, not not the not the insect surgery I'm talking about, but you know, the, trying to turn gay, lesbian, bi, and trans people into something they're not. Um, that may be a discussion that we need to have in Australia because I'm not sure that either the Labor or the Greens are quite there yet in terms of the extent to which we need to send a message that this is no longer appropriate in any form. 
you and Martin Delaney in transforming Tasmania were were instrumental in Tasmania's groundbreaking gender diversity laws that recently passed. I know there were elements of the Liberal Party and other groups that were quite opposed to that legislation. To what extent has that carried over into the federal election campaign in Tasmania? Um, first point, I guess, is, of course, um, I, I had a role to play, a small role, but um, I really want to emphasise the fact that the process was led by transgender and gender-diverse Tasmanians. Um, Transforming Tasmania is a very vibrant group and they've done a great, lot of great work and I tip my hat to them, Martin and Ron Myers and Diddy River and all these other people who have done a great job. So it was certainly a community effort. Um, and... Uh, Yes, despite the fact that those laws passed several weeks ago and, and now, as of um, two days ago, I think, have the royal assent, so they're now officially laws, um, there's continued to be resistance to them from within the Liberal Party um, and also, as you could imagine, from other parties on you know further to the right, um, the National Party and the One Nation and all the rest. Um, there were candidates... Uh, at the beginning of May, we had our regular annual upper house election at a state level um, where three electorates come up every year and two Liberal candidates in, in two of those seats tried to make this an issue. One of them particularly ran some pretty nasty ads um, lumping together the, the gender law reform we've just achieved in Tasmania with mandatory sentencing for pedophiles, for goodness sake, as, uh, under, the, under the title of protecting children. That was pretty, that was pretty nasty stuff. Um, and it didn't make one ounce of difference to her uh, final vote. It didn't increase her vote at all, and she didn't win that seat, that particular candidate, um, and her vote did not increase from the last election. Um, so it seems to have fallen flat, that anti-trans campaign in Tasmania at a state level. Um, now we've seen the Australian Christian lobby come out today saying it will campaign in a number of seats across the country with a focus on the usual you know, safe schools and gender fluidity and, and the Tasmanian transgender reforms. They've said that that will be one of the key issues. Um, I'm hopeful that that won't make a difference in people's minds. I, I, I don't see that it would. Uh, if it didn't make a difference in the state upper house election, why would it make a difference in the federal election? I guess we won't know until May the 18th. Um, but the sense I get is that uh, people, um, that ordinary voters, are, are not really going to be looking at that. Um, they've got other issues on their minds at the moment. Um, and when they do, uh, hopefully they'll seek out, if they have concerns, hopefully they'll seek out the great deal of information that's available in these reforms and they could see that it's not a threat um, and that it only affects trans and gender diverse people um, and it makes their lives infinitely better. Rodney Croom, always great to chat with you on 3CR. Thank you so much for your time this afternoon. Thanks, James. Rodney Croom there. It is 25 to 5. You are on In Your Face on 3CR, and here is Spider Bait. One, two, three, go! The Carpenters there, only yesterday, 20 to 5, on In Your Face on 3CR, with James, joined on the line by Anna Brown. Anna is the CEO of Equality Australia. Anna, welcome to 3CR. Thanks for having me on. Thank you so much for being with us. Anna, what would you nominate as the major election issue for the LGBTIQ community that needs highlighting as we head into the final week of the campaign? 
I think the key one uh, for, for LGBTIQ communities is that of discrimination, particularly by religious organisations and the differences in the parties on their commitment to remove laws that allow discrimination in religious schools, but also by other religious organisations. So what are some of those differences between the major parties? Well, we have a um, I don't know if people remember, but last year uh, we had a bipartisan commitment, or I should say multi-partisan commitment, uh, including by Prime Minister Morrison, to act to ensure that gay and trans students couldn't be expelled from religious schools. But here we are, you know, some months later, and there's still been no legislation passed. And a big reason for that is that um, pressure from uh, religious conservatives and also um, some religious schools led to the Morrison government proposing amendments to a Labor bill that would have actually increased discrimination against students. So we remain really concerned that under a Morrison government that um, we won't see action on this issue and that, in fact, the um, the Prime Minister's commitment to protecting religious freedom in the law will come at the expense of equality for LGBTI people. In comparison, Labor has a clear commitment to remove discrimination against students and teachers, and we're proposing um, the bill um, that was in Parliament that um, reached a standstill last year, and the Greens go even further, and they've made specific commitments um, around removing religious discrimination in other areas as well. Are there any gaps in the policy positions between Labor and the Greens on religious schools that you would like to see addressed? Yeah, look, I think um, what we saw from Labor, as well as the clear commitment around teachers and students, was a broad commitment to continue to work to, to remove discrimination in all Commonwealth laws. But we know, particularly from our experience in the last few months, that the um, the detail of these proposals is really important. Uh, so we really need to make sure that when Labor, if Labor was to win government, that we see the detail of what's proposed and that actually implements um, removal of discrimination in reality. Um, the Greens have made clear commitments around um, sports exemptions that impact on trans and intersex people participating in sport, whereas Labor didn't make any specific commitments around that. And the Greens also... Um, uh, made commitments around sort of religious exemptions more broadly that allow, you know, a transgender person to be refused, uh, you know, a homeless shelter or a gay couple to be um, not 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 allowed to sleep together in some kind of refuge. Uh, there's laws that currently allow, uh, whether it's disability services, youth services, family violence services. Um, even when they're funded by taxpayer dollars, these services can actually lawfully discriminate against LGBTIQ people, which is pretty appalling, and only the Greens have made a specific commitment around that. What's your analysis of Labor's policy commitment to ban conversion therapy? Are they light on the detail, for example? No, I was pretty happy to um, see that it wasn't just a ban. Um, it would, they'd be working with states and territories to implement broader strategies and play a leadership role. Um, for me, that's really welcome, um, given that survivors and uh, people that have done research in the area, including myself, have been encouraging a multifaceted approach um, rather than just legislating to get rid of the problem because we know this, this is a complex issue that requires um, really not just beating religious organisations over over their heads, but actually creating dialogue and encouraging that uh, cultural change from within um, and supportive pastoral care for LGBT people. 
Um, so I was pretty happy that it was a commitment, not just around legislation, but actually other work as well. It, it does need more detail to it, but it, I certainly understand that uh, Labor is going to sit down with survivors of conversion therapy and LGBTI groups to work out the way forward there. Are you disappointed the coalition hasn't mirrored Labor's policy and said it would also ban conversion therapy? And do you call on them to do so? Yeah, absolutely. I, I was, I, I mean, I was surprised, pleasantly surprised that they, um, because initially they were saying it was a state matter and people might remember the Prime Minister said last year that it wasn't an issue in Australia. They've now recognised that it is a problem, which is positive, and they said that they would work with the states and territories to ensure the practices aren't supported or occurring. But I know I've seen um, some uh, survivor advocates um, question whether this will actually lead to any action in reality, given uh, the coalition's sort of lack of responsiveness on this issue and uh, to date. So um, I should say I've got I do have more faith in the Labor commitment in this area, and uh, and of course the Greens have been advocating on this issue for a very long time, and their their commitment also includes funding for awareness raising and also funding for um, LGBTIQ groups. Um, faith groups uh, to help support them and support survivors. You recently had an online forum with uh, Janet Rice from the Greens, Louise Pratt from the ALP and Andrew Bragg from uh, the Liberals in New South Wales. Uh, What was the standout policy position on the night expressed by the candidates? Look, I think it was really exciting for me that we had a major... Well, first of all, that we had all of the parties representing um, on the night and also vying for the... um, the votes of our communities. It was that's a I think a really good position to be in that um, we have the parties trying to um, develop policy in this area because it's been such a gap for so long. I was really excited to see the Labor Party, the first time a major party actually released an LGBTIQ specific election package. Um, I mean, in Victoria, as you know, James, we've got an, you know an amazing. Infrastructure. We've got a minister for LGBTI people and a whole program of work and lots of funding, but that's obviously not replicated um, anywhere else in the country. And so, having a national government with a with a minister um, for LGBTI issues for the first time is really exciting. That's what would happen if Labor was elected, and we'd also have um, a dedicated um, community consultation mechanism. At the moment, I know when LGBTI people go to speak to government about an issue, it's really hard to find an entry point. So actually having someone um, like we do for women or multicultural affairs, having having someone with portfolio responsibility is going to be a real game changer, I think. So that's, I know it's um, sort of institutional and some might say, find it a little boring, but I actually find that the most exciting thing about um, what's on the um, table this election. How did the Liberal representative, Andrew Bragg, go? Was he out of his depth uh, and was he in a difficult position because of the coalition's form on marriage equality and other policy issues for our community? Yeah, I think it was difficult for Andrew. I mean, he he is personally a really big supporter of the LGBTI community. He ran Lib, Lib Nats for Yes, so he, he personally campaigned really hard for equality for LGBTIQ people. Um, but clearly he's he didn't have as much that was positive to talk about compared to the other candidates. And he's um, not been in Parliament before, so compared to, say, Louise Pratt or Janet Rice, um, Janet Rice he has less of the sort of policy background as well. Um, but he did have some positive things to say about uh, 
um, mental health in particular, which is um, great in terms of funding commitments to fund suicide prevention and other programs. I mean, we did actually see all the parties um, announce some money, which was exciting. Labor... Do tell. Yeah. <laughs> and they, Labor had already announced funding for the Victorian Pride Centre that's going to be in St Kilda. Um, so we knew that was happening, but they announced uh, $3 million in community grants. So that that's the first time that we'll see it if Labor gets elected, a national program to support LGBTI community development, which is really exciting. Of course, the Coalition has three gay men who are elected MPs. Did you ask any of them along and were you disappointed that they weren't there? Yeah, look, it was. we did have Trent Zimmerman who was going to attend and then he actually ended up having a difficult commitment. I think it was Josh Frydenberg launching his campaign at exactly the same time. So he found... Uh, the replacement for us, and it was all very short notice. So, I was I was happy um, that we had Andrew um, in the conversation, and I hope in the future we'll have not just LGBTI sort of spokespeople for the Greens and for Labor. That it'd be good to see the coalition actually step up and appoint someone as a spokesperson on these issues that has sort of expertise and a track record that we can go to in the future. Like they did in Victoria, I think we've got a, a Liberal Party uh, spokesperson on LGBT issues that we go to on this stuff. Has Equality Australia asked the Coalition for a spokesperson and have they responded? Yeah, we asked that as part of our survey and uh, they have not decided to announce that they're doing that, so we assume it'll be business as usual after the election if the Coalition's uh, returned to power. Right, so did they did they just not respond or did they say we're choosing not to do that? Uh, they talked about um, they don't, parties don't usually like saying they're choosing not to do something, so they talked about what they would do, which is consi- consi- uh, sorry, continue to consult with LGBTI people through all of the different arms of government that already exist. Have you been uh, pleasantly surprised by the tone from the government towards LGBTIQ issues during this election campaign? Were you expecting it to be nastier? Look, I've been... I was really pleasantly surprised by... um, But actually not surprised. I should say I was was, um, pleased that all of the parties engaged really constructively with our survey process, with the forum, and we saw um, all of the parties really trying to... Um, put forward some initiatives for LGBTIQ people. Um, what I have been really shocked and disappointed about is the level of um, public debate out there and some of the homophobic comments that are coming out of candidates' mouths, if not now, then in the past, that are coming to light. Um, it's really been pretty appalling. Any um, candidates in particular that you'd like to single out? Oh, um, it's a bit hard to keep track, but the most recent... Um, Disendorsement, or I think it was resignation, was Gurpal Singh, who had equated um, or um, said that same-sex marriage would or raise the spectre of, and that old derogatory, very highly offensive, inaccurate stereotype around pedophilia and um, homosexuality, and said that marriage equality would lead to child sex abuse. Now he said these things not recently, but um, it was an interview that came to light from his. Uh, that was recorded half in Punjabi, half in English, and that was, I think, in, back in 2017, around the time of the Marriage Equality Postal Survey. But he then followed it up with some comments that Matt came to light more recently um, around a, a victim of a rape and 
um, that were even that were also very offensive. So he's actually, I think that's just happened today. He's uh, stepped down from his candidacy, but he wasn't the first Liberal MP to say offensive and derogatory things around LGBTIQ people. So we can only hope that um, any party that seeks to govern for all Australians um, sets clear standards around inclusion and respect and there being no place for homophobia or prejudice. Are you disappointed that it took uh, him so long to step down? Uh, you know, it's this has been going on for, for you know, a couple of weeks now. Uh, are you disappointed the Coalition seemingly, and especially Scott Morrison, dragged their heels on this issue? And why do you think it's taken them so long for him to, for him to go? Look, it was, I was surprised that it t- did take as long as it did, and it seems that um, it was the rape... Uh, comments rather than the home, deeply offensive uh, homophobic comments that that were the um, the impetus for the resignation, which I hope is not the case. But if it is, it's pretty disappointing that um, those sorts of comments on their own um, don't don't in their own right um, warrant just a severe um, punishment. That said, I, I mean he made the comments in 2017. He'd apologised unreservedly. We need to, we do need to give people sort of the space and opportunity to change their views. Uh, but um, I, I did want to see more from the Morrison government and the Liberal Party distancing themselves from from the views. And I, you know, it has has now culminated in uh, the candidates stepping down. So I think it's probably the right outcome. What can we expect from Equality Australia after the election campaign-wise? Are there any particular issues you're going to be highlighting? Well, the big issue for us and for all fair-minded Australians will be uh, making sure that students and teachers are safe at school and that um, all schools, no matter whether they're religious or public, have the same rules when it comes to discrimination. That means gay or trans students or teachers are able to be safe at school, safe at work and don't face the threat of discrimination just because of who they are. So we'll be uh, campaigning really hard, whether it's a Liberal government, a Labor government or some kind of minority government. Um, We need to make sure that all the parties are held to their commitments and that we see, uh, you know, this harmful discrimination removed from our law once and for all. Anna Brown, thank you so much for joining me today on 3CR. It's much appreciated. Thanks for having me on, James. It's a great pleasure. Cheers. Have a good day. Bye. You too. Bye. Anna Brown there from Equality Australia. It's four to five. I'm out of here. Jacob's up next with a Friday rave, but taking us out are tears for fears, and we'll catch you next week on In Your Face. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.